Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. There is an Islamic proverb. Trust in God, but tie your camel first. Which means, exhaust all your efforts. Do everything humanly possible. And then, let go of the reins. Wajahat Ali is a writer and public speaker whose perspectives on political, social and cultural in particular multicultural issues, are always shared with a balance of humour, vulnerability and striking insight. In today's meditative story, Waj invites us on his family's difficult but hopeful journey through the illness of his young daughter, an ordeal that forces Waj to strike a delicate balance between faith and action, between exhausting his efforts and surrendering to the outcome. It is sensitive, challenging stuff, so be gentle upon yourself as you listen. In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories and breathtaking music with the science-backed benefits of mindfulness practice. From Wait What and Thrive Global, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan, and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed, the body breathing, your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world. I wake up before the sound of my alarm, to my phone ringing. I'm in Vancouver for work, alone in my hotel room. I hear the morning's first birds. The sound is distinct but softened by the white noise of the hotel's air conditioning. Daylight is just beginning to push its way in, seeping through the cracks of the curtains. I check the caller ID. It's my wife. Before I can even get the phone to my ear, I hear her sobbing, unable to get the words out. My wife's a doctor. 
very level-headed. In fact, both of us are. We're very compatible that way. So to hear her so distraught isn't just upsetting, it's alarming. Something is terribly, dangerously wrong. She's trying to explain, but she can barely string together a coherent sentence. I found a bump on her stomach. She's talking about our little girl, Nuseba. I took her to the hospital and they, they found bumps all over her liver. It's not good, she says, trying to catch her breath. It's not good. I ball my hands up into a fist and punch the pillow. Yell no. Instinctively, I offer a barter prayer. All right, God. My life for hers. Simple trade. 38-year-old man, 2-year-old girl. Let's do this. I'm committed to the barter, even though I know I'm not going to get an answer. But alone, in my room, I still say the prayer. It's my way of trying to make sense of what is ultimately a cruel, senseless event. Why would a two-year-old girl get cancer? There's an Arabic word, waswasa. It refers to those sneaky whispers in your head, that little devil on your shoulder that gives you the absolute worst advice. At those times, you most need a level head. Once it begins, you go to a very dark place, very quickly. Like the Gollum place. In an instant, I mentally and spiritually prepare myself for everything to go wrong. What happens if she dies? This is me burying my daughter. This is me telling my in-laws she passed away. This is me telling my family in Pakistan. This is me imagining my life after burying my daughter. This is me pretending to be happy and normal for the sake of my son. It's a way of avoiding reality, burying my head in the sand. But just as soon as I think it, I rein it back in. So how can I fight this? How does a person take on cancer? A father. How do I take control? A father is supposed to fix things. Like, that's my job. I want to absorb Nuseba's pain. I want to believe it's in my power to fix things. But of course, I'm not a doctor, much to my South Asian parents' chagrin. And to be honest, I don't even have health insurance. My wife does, though, thank God. All I can do is try to make the ride easier for everyone around me. My daughter, my son, my wife, my parents. There's an Islamic proverb. Trust in God, but tie your camel first. Which means, exhaust all your efforts. Do everything humanly possible. And then, let go of the reins. This is the mindset I force myself to assume. I owe it to my daughter to do everything I can, and only then can I surrender. Okay, I say out loud. This is happening. And we will do whatever it takes. If we go down, we go down swinging. 
we go down swinging together. So inshallah, let's fight. This is happening. What is happening with you is happening. For Wajahat, it's a conflicting messy mix of surrender, fight, bargaining and acceptance. It's okay if they're in conflict, but what emotions are here for you? As you lean into what will happen next. Nuseba is diagnosed with hepatoblastoma, a rare cancer that primarily affects children during the first three years of life. It's stage four. Donors. We need a donor. Among the viable donors is a friend of ours who volunteered without telling me. The doctors tell her her liver is a perfect match. For the first time in months, we are ecstatic. Are you 110% positive? Like, for sure, is this happening? This is happening, right? You have done all the tests. It is, like, completely confirmed, correct? Yes. Yes. Check. Yes. Pure joy. It is the exact opposite of how we felt in April when we first found out. But four days before Nuseba's liver transplant surgery, I get a call from Dr. Fishbein at Georgetown Medical Center. He is the expert in the field. He has been doing this for nearly four decades. We can't do it, he says. I see a complication. I'm floored. An immediate reversal of our hope. A punch to the gut. Here is a situation over which we have no control. And so we allow ourselves, both my wife and I, for this day to feel miserable. To sit in this moment and feel this pain, this frustration, this disappointment. But for one day only. One day and one night. That's it. At 4 a.m., lying in bed, just turning over fitfully, I promised myself that when I wake up, I'm going to shake this off, say bismillah, and double our efforts. What constructive role can I actually play in solving this? In her poem, The Speed of Darkness, Muriel Rekaiser writes, The universe is made of stories, not atoms. Stories are how we understand each other. It's how we relate to one another. It's how we find each other on the map. I make a deliberate decision to share my daughter's story. I'm a writer, after all. A storyteller. So I'll tell a story. 
Their protagonist, my three-year-old girl, Nuseba. Warrior princess, daughter of Wajahatali and Sarah Qureshi. The plot, my baby girl has stage four hepatoblastoma, desperately needs a liver. Did you know a donor's liver actually grows back? I had no idea. The hero, we need a global community to step forward and save this little girl. The audience, the network I've already built as a playwright, an author, and as a journalist. Viewers of CNN, readers of the New York Times, my followers on Twitter. The ending. I have no idea. This is how I tie my camel. 500 donors, mostly strangers, step forward. It's surgery day. Nuseba has been matched with an anonymous donor. Today, she gets a new liver. It's early morning. Nuseba is half awake, half asleep. They've given her anesthesia. The doctors will only allow one of us to go into the operating room with her right before the surgery begins. You do it, my wife Sarah says to me. I enter the operating theater. The room is cold, well lit, but not overbearing. Nurses and doctors pass by in masks and gloves. I can hear the clanking of surgical instruments being set, trays being moved. Right before I place Nuseba on the bed, her eyes open. She's awake. I say, your Baba and your Mama love you very much. Be brave. We're very proud of you. And inshallah, I'll see you when you wake up. I give her a little kiss. She looks straight at me. She then closes her eyes. Then I walk away. I don't linger. I release her and her fate to the universe. In the waiting room, I tell my wife, you realize that could have been the last time. I know, she says. I know. What else can I do? I make peace with the fact that this is the last time I may see Nuseba alive. I'm not God. I cannot control whether she lives or dies. I am overwhelmed with a sense of mortality. I mean, who are we? We're just stardust in the universe. Now I could cry or freak out, but instead this, this strange kind of peace floods over me. There's literally nothing else I can do. The pain, though difficult, somehow feels liberating, freeing. I feel lighter knowing I've unburdened myself from the expectations, from the feelings that I could somehow control this thing. I know I can't. And so all that is left to do is release. Okay, universe, have at it. Come back with good results. And uh, look after the doctors too, eh? I have tied the camel. It's now time to have faith. Can you imagine Wajahat here in the hospital? 
see his body now freer from the need to be in control. Soften your own body mind. A smile, an outbreath. Offer him your presence. I get up from my seat in the waiting room at one point to go find food for my wife. I need something to do. A chore. Something to distract me from my racing thoughts. I walk fast. I'm trying to focus. Searching for this thing called the Epicurean Cafe. My eyes are bloodshot. I am exhausted. I'm wearing jeans with the hospital gown I never bother to take off. I'm a madman tearing across the Georgetown campus on the loose, waiting in line at the cafe, holding an overpriced buffet salad for Sarah. The college kids in line are averting their eyes and instinctively stepping away from me. The cleanest and easiest surgery we've ever been through. That's what every nurse and doctor tells us. Everything went perfectly down to the way Nuseba's body matched with the natural aortic curve of her donor's liver. In the hallway outside my daughter's room, we bumped into the donor's surgeon. There were tears in this man's eyes. He says, Your daughter got a good man's liver. Most people, when they wake up, you know what's the first thing they ask? Will I be all right? When can I go back to work? This donor, he woke up and he asked, when will I be well enough to donate blood again? Your daughter's going to be fine. She's got a good man's liver. Hearing those words, I feel an unexpected shift. We live in jaded and divisive times. It is easy to fall into a cycle of despair and cynicism. At that moment, I can't discount the forces of good that still existed in the universe. I zoom out and am able to see everything that unfolded once we shared Nuseba's story. 500 people, mostly strangers, sign up as liver donors. We raised awareness. Certain donors who signed up connected with other patients who then got saved. For the first time in Georgetown's history, the supply of donors outstripped the demand. In fact, they're trying to create a new center to accept living donors to save more children, all inspired by Nuseba's story. We give people an opportunity and they show us their appetite for kindness and selflessness. We see that people are willing to set aside their differences on politics, religion, class. If you invite people to participate in the ongoing narrative of a little girl struggling to survive, they will answer your invitation. Even people who hate me because of my politics. This moment 
prompted me to give humanity a second chance. Because humanity gave me a second chance. Tying your camel and having faith is a practice bigger than me. Its impact spreads outwards, touching dozens, then hundreds, and eventually thousands of people through a ripple effect. My Ummi calls. You know better, she says to me. It's interesting how life works out. I always wanted you to be a doctor. And that didn't happen. But think about it. If you weren't a writer and you didn't have this outreach, would people have known about Nusepa? Would people have donated? Would we have ever gotten here? She pauses for a moment and then continues. Maybe, if you think about it, you being a writer helps save your daughter's life. I catch a glimpse of Nuseba donning her Supergirl cape. And I stop everything just to stare at her. Two or three times a day, at least. I think to myself, she's alive. Wow. She's alive and cancer-free. This is my life. I feed my kids. They take a poop. I clean them. I feed them again. Food falls on them. I feed them. They run around. I clean them. I feed them. They literally poop again. And then every two hours, because of their insane metabolism and the fact that they take after their mother, who is a runner, they eat again. I put them to bed. And then the day is done. Is this all we do? My wife Sarah jokes with me. This is all we do. This is life, I laugh. But look, the kids are having a great time. None of us has had a moment even to reflect, to pause, or to exhale. So when Sarah and I spend like two or three minutes remembering certain hospital trips, I go, holy crap. And she says, yeah, me too. And then we move on quickly. A, because we do not have time. And B, because we've gone from crisis to crisis. From personal crisis to a global pandemic. And who the hell can make any sense of that? Maybe just getting on with life is a way of surviving trauma. Like, you don't want to dwell on it. Or maybe we need more distance. Or, maybe, it's just more important to keep living. The kids are fed, they're happy, they're pooping, they're running around, they're sleeping easy. They play in the garden, and when they come out shrieking about a monster they found, yelling, What was that noise? We just stay calm and say, That's nothing. That's just Baba's hungry stomach. Our job is to hold the door. Keep the demons at bay. I hope I've pulled it off. I don't know. I mean, they seem to be normal. But that's the thing about being a father. About life. How do I control this? I can't. And so I just have to do the best that I can. When I get off the phone with my mother, I look up again. Nuseba's done 
another costume change. One of four that will happen before bedtime. Her hair's come back, her NG tubes out of her nose. She has a brand new liver. She's here and she's sassy with her thick and curly ringlets combed back. She's fighting with her brother Ibrahim. She's playing with her My Little Pony toys. She giggles and laughs. Her little voice is a booming storm and a reminder that we made it through the woods. Yuseba declares, Mama, I'm tired, and parks herself wherever she wants. My son then declares, Baba, I'm tired, and all of a sudden he lands asleep on me like I'm his personal lazy boy. And I realize that's my job as a parent to try as best as I can to give them the chance to sleep easy for now. To have no worries. She's alive. And that's our win. Yesterday, we tied the camels. Today, we take the win. And wait, with faith, for whatever will come at us next. Thank you, Wajahat. In just a moment, I'll guide you through a closing meditation. Before we start the meditation proper, do take a little while to settle in, as long as feels right. You know, sometimes after a story like that, a big sigh can be just what we need. Letting your body be comfortable. Listening to Wadja's story was a bit of a ride for me, maybe especially so as the father of two small children myself. So I can notice a decent bit of holding tension in my shoulders. Sometimes just noticing it is enough to soften it. But no, I'm intentionally relaxing the area, doing what I can for the body to be soft and open. See if you can do the same. Notice where there might be some holding in your body and keep it in your attention, inviting it to soften. Okay, let's go. We're going to play with a form of meditation called loving-kindness with a bit of gratitude practice sprinkled on top for good measure inspired by Wadja's story of his daughter. So start by bringing to mind Nuzaiba's donor. A man, anonymous, who gave part of himself so that she may live. Thank you. May you be well. May you be happy. Imagine him, however works for you. A piece of him, now her. Thank you. Who knows, he might be listening to this right now. 
May you be well. May you be happy. About 6,000 living organ donations take place in the US each year, and many thousands more are donated from those who do so upon death. A stadium load of people, giving themselves so that others may live. Thank you. May you know peace. May you have known peace. An organ is quite a full-on gift, but there are people in your life who have given you part of themselves, selflessly, so that you might be a better you. Who comes to mind? The first person you think of is a good person to go with. Bring them to mind. They may be alive or dead, lying next to you or several time zones away. If it helps, remembering a memory of a favourite time you spent with them, or the thing about them that makes you smile. Bringing them to mind, letting them rest here. Thank you. Thank you for making a bit of you a bit of me. May you be well. May you be happy. You, now, me. You, me. May you be well. May we be happy. And now, turning the beam around, you the donor of kind thoughts and attention and care. In your own way, you do the same. Sacrifice pieces of yourself for the well-being of others. In small ways, sometimes in big ways. No need to feel awkward about turning the beam around, letting the chest be soft. The heart centre. May I be well. May I be happy. May I be well. May I be happy. Thank you, and go well. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how meditative story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, We'd really appreciate it.
meditative story is a Wait Watch original in partnership with Thrive Global. The show is produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are Darren Triff, June Cohen, Ariana Huffington, and Dan Katz. Our producer is Timothy Lou Lee. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our curator is Carrie Goldstein. Original music and sound design is by the Holiday Brothers. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Anne Sachs, Juliana Stone, Summer Matice, Monica Lee, Lindsay Benoit O'Connell, Libby Duke, Smithy Sinha, Stephanie Gonzalez, and Sarah Sandman. And I'm Rohan Gunatilaka, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode. On the next episode of Meditative Story, 